Welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. This month marks the 25th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square protest. In 1989, more than a million students and workers occupied Beijing's central square and began the largest political protest in the history of communist China. Six weeks of demonstrations ended with a notorious night of bloodshed and loss of life on the 3rd of June. This month, we're marking the event with our China special. We'll be revisiting Yung Chang's interview for her latest book about the most important woman in Chinese history, Empress Dowager Cixi. We also have a special report from the New Yorker's China correspondent, Evan Osnos, reading an excerpt from his new book, The Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth and Faith in the New China. But first, we welcome Zhao Lu Guo. Born in China and now living in London, Zhao Lu's books have been translated into over 20 languages and have gained a host of literary accolades, including shortlistings for the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize, the International Impact Dublin Literary Award and the Orange Broadband Prize for Fiction. And last year, Zhao Lu was selected as one of Granta's best of young British novelists. As well as an acclaimed writer, she's also a successful filmmaker of feature films and documentaries. Her work has premiered all over the world, including MoMA in New York, and most recently at the BFI London Film Festival and Venice Film Festival. Today, we'll be chatting about her latest novel, I Am China. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jalu. And I think you're going to start off um, just by reading a little bit of the book for us, aren't you? Yeah. Um, so I will read the opening section from I Am China. Although the book is set really everywhere, especially set in the West, Europe and America, but this opening section is, um, is China, when the protagonist, the last days remaining in China, and then after that he's in exile in the West. This is a letter Kublai Jian wrote to his lover, uh, Mu, a poet. Dearest Mu, the sun is piercing, old bastard sky. I am feeling empty and bare. Nothing is in my soul apart from the image of you. I am writing to you from a place I cannot tell you about yet. Perhaps when I'm safe, I'll be able to let you know where I am. I don't know what the plan is and what my future might hold. One thing is for sure, I will try to stay free and alive for you. And whatever happens, these ideas I have stuck by all my life, the beliefs that landed me here in the first place, I cannot let them go. I must live for them. I know we will see each other again, my love, but how long until that day, I cannot tell. When I look around at where I am now, it seems so obvious that it should have come to this. Maybe this is where I was going the whole time. I just never saw it coming, or never believed it. I've been headed here, I realize, ever since June 1989. I know we have talked about it so much, but tonight under this southern sky, the images of that night are bending in my head. You were still in your southern hometown. We hadn't ever met. But I was there, and here I will say it again. I wish I had been shot that day. I should have died there, shot and crashed under the tanks. Thank you so much. Um, the person who is writing that letter, the reason that he wants, he wishes that he, he had been killed, essentially is that he thinks 
the people have been entirely beaten by by the the day, uh, by the events of the day at Shannon Square, isn't it? Yeah, it it's like a metaphorical um, letter sent by this protagonist, uh, a musician, a punk musician. He wished he he was a part of revolutionary since 1989, but he wasn't there because he was much more in love with his music, composing his music rather than being in in the in the whole the real actual event in the revolution. Uh, so I think the novel is constructed from that day, that night, 89, June 4th. But again, really, it's really about the role of artists in the political environment mm-hmm. and how some other artists choosing totally different path, which is his lover choosing a totally apolitical life, go beyond that. Mm-hmm. It's very, You have all these different protagonists and different ways of telling the story. I find it absolutely fascinating. There are letters throughout this story, including the letters that, that the protagonist and um, that we've already heard on writes to the Queen when he's in de- in a detention centre in, in this country. And you have a translator who is also a key figure, don't you? Yeah. Um, the whole story is told by this English translator called Iona Kirkpatrick, uh, who grew up in the Scotland and they live in London. So she's kind of our anchor. She would take us to this journey to see these two revolutionary lovers from the China. Um, and then they, these two characters really left China and, and separated, one in America and one in Europe. So I was interested in the relationship between the East and West, really about the, the understanding and misunderstanding and interpretation between the two cultures. Would you say that that... that um idea of how the cultures do and don't understand each other, what in fact the vast gulf in what they actually know about one another uh, has been pretty important to kind of all your novel writing. I think so. I think in the beginning, um, when I wrote other novels, I was very unconscious of what I I was trying to do, uh, kind of in the bridge in the East and West, and uh, talk about the, the foreignness of of a foreigner come to another culture. But then again, I think with this novel, it was more systematic. I want to, to build these, these characters who live in completely different environment. And one is from ideological society. Another one is living in a very a relatively free democratic society. So this English woman. And this double reading and trying to understand each other, trying to live in other person's life through literature, through translation. So this was kind of, you know, the idea I had in the beginning of the, the writing and the whole book is really constructed from that. Tell us just a bit, a bit about how you came to be a writer and, and what your sort of journey to writing was and what has led to the decision really to you to be based here, to be writing in English. I started as a very young poet, teenager poet, in the, in the southern province in China. So my love to the literature is more, I guess, less narrative, more kind of, you know, poetry movement in the 80s. In China, we call it a mystery poetry movement. Um, and all the poets called the mystic poets. And I wrote about this in, in this novel too. So that was kind of beginning of my literature kind of life. And then later on, I, I came to Beijing when I was 20, studied film and the filmmaking. Um, and I think I learned the narrative in my novels from film world, cinema world. So I, I wrote script for years before I came to the UK. In 2002, I came to the UK and I decided to, to write novel. And so I wasn't sure if I would write in English or Chinese. But then, you know, when you live in a, in a country, they don't speak your language. And I, you, were, you were eager to, to communicate. 
um, to find your voice, to you know, to to tell other people your life, then you would adapt or adopt the, the second language, which is English. So that was the beginning. Um, Eleven years ago, I decided I just write in my broken English, mm-hmm. and that was a novel called、um, a Concise Chinese English Dictionary for Lovers, and it's about a character come from China, kind of frustrated to to speak perfect English. She wrote she wrote a broken English dictionary, which after the Oxford Dictionary. So she writes the whole book. As like little vocabularies contains meanings and little stories for her to remember those English、mm-hmm. vocabulary, and therefore, as a little narrative is constructed from that. So that was the beginning of my writing fiction in English. And、um, although before that I was writing Chinese, but but these the last ten years I write in English.、Um, I think there were three or four novels I wrote. It was completely new thing for me, and it's I find. I rediscover myself in a way, you know, reinvent myself, my language and and a style in my book. So it's quite it's challenging, but it's very interesting, and I, I found a very liberating process for me. But it also takes a great deal of sort of courage to just kind of almost fling yourself into the unknown, really, and to fling yourself into this medium of language that you know you you have nothing to go by, as it were. I guess you have no choice. You know, it's like so. Say, if Chinese language is a global language, is a communication.、Um, One lingo we have to learn. Then you would, you know, if you live in China, you would desperately speak Chinese, learn Chinese, and write in Chinese even, because there's no choice. So, which I know, I don't know how you know this,、um, you know, significant is for a foreign writer. But for me, somehow, I suddenly found myself with this double personality as a writer,、mm. and I can swim around,、um, you know, with different style, exercise different style, and.、Uh, And the language, and a, and a kind of character, very different characters, and a structure as well. I think I would never write with such a structure if I write in Chinese.、Um, so, in a way, that the literature style comes with a language, and the language is almost a certain kind of identity to lead you to different. A narrative or, or, or format of, of literature. It was very interesting to me that in that you sort of put this other character, Iona, the translator, who has come from this Scottish island where she's had a completely sort of cut off,、um, very very different kind of life, and. What she wants to do is lose herself in a way in the anonymity of London, and lose herself in. She's a translator, so she loses herself in other languages. She loses herself in sexual encounters with men, rather than sort of long-term relationships.、Um, and there seemed to be this great idea of people sort of travelling distances and and kind of losing themselves deliberately. I、um, I actually very. Very much connected to this、uh, woman character, English translator Iona, and I think she presents two things. One is, is, is the solitude of being a writer or being a translator.、Um, I think writer's life is such a life you live in the brain, and then you kind of live in the in the multi-dimensional imaginative world. But your physicality is totally lonely, solitary, and you know it's kind of anti-social life.、Mm. Um, and I think Iona presents that kind of life, which my life. Last twenty five years, I've been writing books and really quite a solitary life.、Uh, so I connect to her immensely. But on the other hand, she presents kind of modern, modern urban way 
of living, you know, the youth nowadays live in a big city, and you can have a casual sexual encounters with with other people. But then again, in a day in the daytime, you are again alone, try to find who you are, mm-hmm. and uh, somehow love life is a part of a nightlife for for those kind of you know modern character. So Ionis is very. Um, it's nearly symbolic and abstract, uh, but really, you know, without her, without this book, she's really kind of my anchor for the book. Mm-hmm. I wonder how you feel um, writing as a, a Chinese person, writing in English, living in London, how you feel about the extent to which, you know, we are not aware in this country of Chinese writing to any great extent. We do not read um, Chinese writers a great deal when, for example, someone like Mo Yan wins the Nobel Prize. For many people, that will be the first time they've heard of that person. They probably haven't read very much, if anything. Um, Do you think that's something that's changing? Is it something that you think it's important does change? Mm. I think it is changing. Say five years ago, ten years ago in Britain, if you mention a Chinese writer's name, would be you know the response would be blank. But uh, now, I think in the last five years, it was great media attention to China. But sadly, you know, it's always about you know GDP growth of China economy. You know, those are very abstract, dry information about country. Yet culture is something much more, in my opinion, is much more powerful to understand, to to connect with, rather than the GDP talk. And I think, in a way, the the, the economical growth of China, that kind of presentation of China, is demonize a country. Because then it become the country become a monster, a economical competitor rather than a culture, a place where you can t- connect a geography or a culture or a history you feel attracted to. Mm. So I guess I felt I really have this kind of I feel this responsibility to to write something which I think people from other culture can easily or s- softly lend to this landscape, and then they can find their own path entrance into this culture which is really hard to, to understand mm-hmm. especially the last 50 years of communism history before that actually this vast kind of long history which is Confucius history and his ideology and all that is you know is typical Asian but the last 50 years 60 years is not typical Asian is really a part of Eastern European kind of ideological um, society and a communist society and again, I think I wanted to use this now I'm China to combine these two elements, um, the, 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 the remote history of China and then the current ideological history of China, um, to use these two and then to launch my characters into this platform. I wanted just to ask you, uh, finally, about um, the experience of being, being on the Granta um, Best of Young British um, Novelists list. Now, it was a list that was really noticeable for the way it tried to look to different parts of the world, across the world, um, uh, other traditions, other literary traditions. Um, but how did it feel to you to be on that list, that, that very kind of particular title, British novelist? Is that how you feel? I have a different idea. Well, I, I guess my my feeling, having received this um, a grant of best of young British novelist, this kind of, this name, perhaps, you know, presents other my 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 generation my my contemporaries feeling we don't exactly feel you know we are part of say English literature but then then we are in Britain so Britain is much larger concept and somehow it beyond national identity in a way mm-hmm. you know we all live in London okay London is part of Britain and I say you know the the, the concept of English literature perhaps was strong in 19th century but nowadays we we, we barely say English literature 
because what is English literature after Victoria time, you know, after, say, after George Orwell time, um, it launched to different culture, for example, Zadie Smith's novel, you know, YT's, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, say, Samar Rushdie, all these novels. I think it launches British literature into a very wider horizon, which, you know, loads of immigrants and mixed culture and you know, cross-cultural identity, really born and bred on this land, Britain. And we brought um, this foreignness, foreign culture and history. And the foreignness in British literature now is kind of like the, the, the big or the major thing, the major theme um, in the novels or in the nonfiction. So I felt, um, you know, in that sense, I think, you know, I kind of belong to this big landscape. But the society is changing. And I think only place like London or New York, somehow I felt more at ease, you know, feel home, um, because you 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 feel you have place and voice, but in some other culture, I might feel you know really foreign. Say I move to Iceland or Korean, I, I wouldn't feel so comfortable because you are always kind of foreign. Shalu, thank you so much. That was fascinating. Thanks ever so much for coming in today and talking to us. Thank you. And now, a young army captain who risked execution to swim from free market Taiwan to communist China. A barber who made $150 million in the gambling dens of Macau. The richest woman in China, a recycling tycoon known as the Waste Paper Queen. Age of Ambition by New Yorker China correspondent Evan Osnos describes some of the billion individual lives that make up China's story. One that unfolds on remote farms, in glittering mansions and in the halls of power of the world's largest authoritarian regime. Together, they describe the defining clash taking place today between the individual and the Communist Party's struggle to retain control. Based on years of research, Age of Ambition reveals China as we've never understood it before. I'm going to hand over to Evan now, who'll read to us from his new book. Whenever a new idea sweeps across China, a new fashion, a philosophy, a way of life, the Chinese describe it as a fever In the first years after the country opened to the world, people contracted Western business suit fever and Jean-Paul Sartre fever and private telephone fever. It was difficult to predict when or where a fever would ignite or what it would leave behind. In the village of Xiajia, population 1,564, there was a fever for the American cop show, Hunter, better known in Chinese as expert detective Hung Tu. When the show appeared on Chinese television in 1990, the villagers of Xiajia started to gather to watch Detective Rick Hunter of the Los Angeles Police Department go undercover with his partner, Detective Didi McCall. And the villagers of Xiajia came to expect that Detective Rick Hunter would always find at least two occasions to utter his trademark phrase, works for me, though in Chinese he came across as a religious man because works for me had been mistranslated as whatever God wants. The fever passed from one person to the next, and it affected each in a different way. Some months later, when the police in Xiajia tried to search the home of a local farmer, the man told them to come back when they had a warrant, a word that he had learned from expert detective Hung Tu. When I moved to China in 2005, I was accustomed to hearing the story of China's metamorphosis told in vast, sweeping strokes involving one-sixth of humanity and great pivots of politics and economics. But up close, the deepest changes were intimate and perceptual. 
buried in daily rhythms in ways that were easy to overlook. The greatest fever of all was aspiration, a belief in the sheer possibility to remake a life. Some who tried succeeded, many others did not. More remarkable was that they defied a history that told them never to try. Lu Xun, China's most celebrated modern author, once wrote, Hope is like a path in the countryside. Originally there was no path, but once people begin to pass, a way appears. I lived in China for eight years, and I watched this age of ambition take shape. Above all, it is a time of plenty, the crest of a transformation 100 times the scale and 10 times the speed of the Industrial Revolution which created modern Britain. The Chinese people no longer want for food. The average citizen eats six times as much meat as in 1976. But this is a ravenous era of a different kind, a period when people have awoken with a hunger for new sensations, ideas, and respect. China is the world's largest consumer of energy, movies, beer, and platinum. It's building more high-speed railroads and airports than the rest of the world combined. For some of its citizens, China's boom has created stupendous fortune. China is the world's fastest-growing source of new billionaires. Several of the new plutocrats have been among the world's most dedicated thieves. Others have been holders of high public office. Some have been both. For most of the Chinese people, however, the boom has not produced vast wealth. It has permitted the first halting steps out of poverty. The rewards created by China's rise have been wildly inconsistent, but fundamentally profound. It is one of the broadest gains in human well-being in the modern age. In 1978, the average Chinese income was $200. By 2013, it was 6000 By almost every measure, the Chinese people have achieved longer, healthier, more educated lives. Living in Beijing in these moments, I've found that confidence in one's ideas, especially about China's future, seems to vary inversely with the time one spends on the ground. The complexities blunt the impulse to impose a simple logic on them. To find order in the changes, we seek refuge of a kind in statistics. In my years in China, the number of airline passengers doubled. Cell phone sales tripled. The length of the Beijing subway quadrupled. But I was less impressed by those numbers than by a drama that I could not quantify. A generation ago, visitors to China marveled most at the sameness of it all. To outsiders, Chairman Mao was the emperor of the blue ants, as one memorable book title had it, a secular god in a land of matching cotton suits and production teams. Stereotypes about the Chinese as collectivist, inscrutable drones endured in part because China's politics helped sustain them. Official China reminded its guests that it was a nation of work units and communes and uncountable sacrifice. But in the China that I encountered, the national narrative, once an ensemble performance, is splintering into a billion stories, stories of flesh and blood, of idiosyncrasies and solitary struggles. It's a time when the ties between the world's two most powerful countries, China and the United States, can be tested by the aspirations of a lone peasant lawyer who chose the day and the hour in which to alter his fate. It is the age of the changeling, when the daughter of a farmer can propel herself from the assembly line to the boardroom so fast that she never has time to shed the manners and anxieties of the village. It is a moment when the individual became a gale force in political, economic, and private life, 
so central to the self-image of a rising generation that a coal miner's son can grow up to believe that nothing matters more to him than seeing his name on the cover of a book. Viewed one way, the greatest beneficiary of the age of ambition is the Chinese Communist Party. In 2011, the party celebrated its 90th birthday, a milestone unimaginable at the end of the Cold War. In the years after the Soviet Union collapsed, Chinese leaders studied that history and vowed never to suffer the same fate. When Arab dictatorships fell in 2011, China's endured. To survive, the Chinese Communist Party shed its scripture but held fast to its saints. It abandoned Marx's theories but retained Mao's portrait on the gate of heavenly peace, peering down on Tiananmen Square. The party no longer promises equality or an end to toil. It promises only prosperity, pride, and strength. And for a while, that was enough. But over time, the people have come to want more, and perhaps nothing more ardently than information. New technology has stirred a fugitive political culture. Things once secret are now known. People once alone are now connected. And the more the party has tried to prevent its people from receiving unfiltered ideas, the more they have stepped forward to demand them. China today is riven by contradictions. It is the world's largest buyer of Louis Vuitton, second only to the United States in its purchases of Rolls Royces and Lamborghinis. Yet ruled by a Marxist-Leninist party that seeks to ban the word luxury from billboards. The difference in life expectancy and income between China's wealthiest cities and its poorest provinces is the difference between New York and Ghana. China has two of the world's most valuable internet companies and more people online than the United States, even as it redoubles its investment in history's largest effort to censor human expression. China has never been more pluralistic, urban, and prosperous, yet it is the only country in the world with a winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in prison. Sometimes China is compared to the Japan of the 1980s, when a hundred square feet in downtown Tokyo sold for a million dollars, and tycoons were sipping cocktails over ice cubes shipped from Antarctica. By 1991, Japan was in the largest deflation of assets in the modern history of capitalism. But the similarities run thin. When Japan's bubble burst, it was a mature, developed economy. But China, even overheated, remains a poor country in which the average person earns as much as a Japanese citizen in 1970. At other moments, China's goose-stepping soldiers, its defectors, and its dissidents recall the Soviet Union, or even Nazi Germany. But those comparisons are unsatisfying. Chinese leaders do not threaten to bury America the way Khrushchev did, and even China's fiercest nationalists do not seek imperial conquest or ethnic cleansing. China reminds me most of America at its own moment of transformation, the period that Mark Twain and Charles Warner named the Gilded Age, when every man has his dream, his pet scheme. The United States emerged from the Civil War on its way to making more steel than Britain, Germany, and France combined. In 1850, America had fewer than 20 millionaires. By 1900, it had 40,000, some as bumptious and proud as James Gordon Bennett, who bought a restaurant in Monte Carlo after he was refused a seat by the window. As in China, the dawn of American fortune was accompanied by spectacular treachery. Our method of doing business, said the railway man, Charles Francis Adams, Jr., a grandson and great-grandson of presidents, is founded upon lying, cheating, and stealing. 
Eventually, F. Scott Fitzgerald gave us the slippery tale of James Gatz of North Dakota, who catapulted himself into a new world in doomed pursuit of love and fortune. When I stood in the light of a new Chinese skyline, I sometimes thought of Gatsby's New York. Always the city seen for the first time in its first wild promise of all the mystery and the beauty in the world. In the early years of the 21st century, China encompasses two universes, the world's newest superpower and the world's largest authoritarian state. Some days I spent the morning with a new tycoon and the evening with a dissident under house arrest. It was easy to see them as representing the new China and the old, distinct realms of economics and politics. But eventually I concluded that they were one and the same, and the contrast was an unstable state of nature. The story of China in the 21st century is often told as a contest between East and West, between state capitalism and the free market. But in the foreground, there is a more immediate competition, the struggle to define the idea of China. Understanding China requires not only measuring the light and heat thrown off by its incandescent new power, but also examining the source of its energy, the men and women at the center of China's becoming. Last year, we were thrilled to welcome Wild Swans author Yung Chang to the podcast studio when she came to talk to us about the most important woman in Chinese history. The paperback of her book, Empress Dowager Cixi, is out on the 3rd of July this year. So here she is again, telling us why we need to rewrite the history books. I'm delighted now to be joined by Yung Chang, who's going to talk to us about her hugely impressive new book, The Empress Dowager Cixi. Welcome, Jung. And we've got between us, haven't we, this absolutely beautiful hardback with this incredibly imposing figure on it. And this is the Empress. Just start by telling us a bit a bit about her. Empress Dao Jie was born in 1835 and died in 1908. At the age of 16, she was selected in the national selection for imperial consorts. She was selected as one of the concubines for Emperor Xianfeng, her husband. And she bore a son. And in 1861, when the emperor died, um, she launched the palace coup and seized power from the eight uh, sort of grandees um, appointed by her husband to be the joint regents for her son. And she made herself the ruler of China. Now, this coup changed the fate of China because she opened the door of China to the West, and she brought China into the modern age. Before that, her husband and the um, the, the grandfather and so on had closed China for more than a hundred years. So she um, opened the doors of China. So you mean essentially there had been no real contact with, with the rest of the world. It had been a sort of separate, closed kind of empire. And she decided that this should stop, that this was not the way for China to kind of move forward in, into the future. And so what did she do? She opened the doors of China. She allowed Western missionaries to come into China and practice. She sent envoys abroad. Um, she modernized the army and the navy. Um, she brought in modern ways of mining, and the railways, and the telephone, the telegraph. She 
revolutionized China's educational system and modernized it.、Um, so China's educational system today is more more or less like the in the West. And most importantly, I mean, it seems to me, she launched the women's liberation. And before that, she she banned foot binding. You know this、um, this cruel and terrible practice, which had been practiced in China for over a thousand years. Women's feet were crushed and bound into this tiny little thing,、uh, you know, called three-inch golden lilies.、Mm. And women were sort of in pain throughout their lives, and she banned the practice,、um, and she abolished the medieval forms of punishment, such as death by a thousand cuts. You know, when the,、um, the convicted were sort of sliced slowly to death,、yes. um, so she brought in a system、um, that made China sort of more humane and more free. And、um, she gave the she more or less established the free press,、um, and so there was a real a hundred flowers、uh, blooming in China under her rule. And her last project before her untimely death. Was to introduce parliamentary democracy in China, to turn China into a constitutional monarchy like Britain. But unfortunately, she died. It's. I mean, from what you're saying and the way that you describe her, she's the the heralder of more freedom, all sorts of positive things, and yet she's not always been regarded as a positive force, has she? Well, she's been maligned for over a hundred years, and the history has been treating her very badly, unfairly. <laughs> I, I, I think,、um, you know, the main reason she was depicted as this cruel despot and die-hard conservative. She initiated all the reforms, and yet her image, if you go on Google. Or you know, on the web, you will see her image. It was still someone who killed the reforms, and yet it was not very difficult to establish her real role.、Um, and the reason why she was so maligned was mainly that you know,、uh, three years after she died, China became a republic. The Republicans first, the Nationalists, then the Communists, wanted to um, um, project the picture that she had made a mess of China, and they had rescued China from her mess. So there was the decades of propaganda against her.、Um, and the other thing is, of course,、um, during her. Rule, because she was a woman. She was never a legitimate ruler. She had no mandate to rule in her own right. Literally, she had to sit behind a screen when she saw her officials. I mean, in my book, there is a picture of the audience hall. You see, there was an empty throne,、um, which the babe, the child emperor, first. Her son, then her adopted son, would sit, and she would sit behind a yellow silk screen, so she couldn't even see her officials. Um, it, it, I mean, she—if you have been to Beijing, you 
probably would have been to the Forbidden City, the giant, um, magnificent front part of the Forbidden City was forbidden even to her, even though she was the supreme ruler of China for decades. And, and it was because she was a woman. And so she ruled in the name of her son and her adopted son. And so it was um, not so easy to to get kind of actually decide which was her idea and which was not. Um, so that needed a, a lot of scholarly research. Her son was, you know, her sort of first route in to being able to take power because mm-hmm. she'd born the emperor and heir. And then, of course, he died childless. And essentially, am I right to say that she adopted a, mm. her other son in order to carry on ruling? But mm. of course, he then subsequently turned against her. Yes. Um, in 1861, the Empress Dowager seized the power and made herself the power behind the throne with her own son, um, then five, five years old. Um, And then when the son died um, in his teens, actually, um, she adopted her sister's son, who was then three years old. I mean, what she wanted was to go on ruling, and she wanted the child emperor so she could kind of rule behind the throne. Um, And her rule was phenomenally successful. Um, because when the gr- adopted son grew up in 1889, she had to retire. And at that time, she was at the peak of her reputation as a, a great stateswoman. All the foreign envoys got together and sang her praise. And, and there was no doubt to them that she was the first person in their race. I'm quoting sort of some of them, paraphrasing. Um, the first of her race to um, understand the relationship of China, the problems of the relationship of China with the outside world, and to use that relationship to turn around and use that relationship to benefit China and its people. And so they tremendously admired her. And then she handed a splendid legacy to her adopted son, um, who made a, really made a mess of it in his eight-year rule. Um, and then the result of the son's, adopted son's rule was um, the Japanese um, invasion, the Japanese war in 1894, which was really the beginning of the ruin for China. You referred earlier to the kind of weight of historical research that you needed to undertake. Mm. Um, And a lot of it, I think, was done with with kind of newly opened archives Mm. and sources. But I just wanted to ask you how how personally it felt, how much you sort of felt that you got close to this woman who, as you say, was maligned and actually had this very positive um, impact Mm. on the country. Um, I first got interested in the Empress Dowager when I was researching wild swans, and my grandmother had bound feet, um, crushed in the bound feet. And I had at that time thought somehow it was the communists who outlawed foot binding. And then I discovered it was the Empress Dowager um, who banned it in 1902. And then I, when I was researching the biography of Mao, 
my biography with my husband about Mao, the unknown story. Um, um, I was astonished by the freedom and opportunities that the young Mao enjoyed. He was born under her and grew up under her rule. And, um, you know, as a peasant lad, he could get scholarships to go to colleges easily. She could go, he could go abroad if he wanted to, but it turned out he didn't want. And, and there was a free press. He could write what he wanted to say. And he could travel with his girlfriends and check into hotels, um, you know, unmarried. Um, nobody asked questions. And uh, somehow it was a freedom that I, I as uh, growing up in China, uh, could never dream of. And so I got interested in her. And then, of course, after the Mao biography finished, uh, when I was thinking about another book, and some friends suggested the Empress Dowager. And I, well, I was immediately sort of interested. And then I searched for information about her. And I was astonished to see how negative, how universally negative the, the write-ups about her um, are still. Um, and so I got into research. There were mountains of stuff in the um, main archives about her dynasty, which is the Qing dynasty. The archives is the Forbidden City archives, also called the number one national archives of China. And in that archives, there are 12 million documents. Um, since Mao, my previous subject, died in 1976, archivists and scholars have been working on these documents and they've been um, editing them, you know, sort of compiling them, photocopying them, and even digitalizing a lot of them, including the imperial decrees. Um, so I was benefited in my research from this vast amount of uh, source materials. I, mean, I could, in fact, I downloaded all the imperial decrees, and I could sit on my at my computer and uh, and bring up um, what she had actually decreed. So it was a riveting period of research. I enjoyed it, and of course there were a lot of materials about her abroad. I mean the picture uh, on the cover of the book, which you just mentioned, is a stunning picture. And it was uh, beautifully colored by um, Suzanne of, of Cape uh, Random House, um, who did design this gorgeous cover. The original um, photograph was black and white. It was taken in 1903. Um, but the details, I mean, the scanning, the mod modern scanning had brought out such details that you could see every wrinkle on her face <laughs> and so on. And all the, the negatives are in the archives of the, the gallery in the Smithsonian. When I was researching in the archives in America, in Smithsonian, the archivist and I have discovered the discrepancy of her pictures there from the pictures in the Forbidden City. Mm. And the Forbidden City once looked much, much younger 
I mean, you know, with with all without any wrinkles, and she looked instead of seventy, she was nearly seventy when she was photographed. They, they look forty. So everybody in China actually thought she had some secret to keep <laughs> the secret her. of youth. <laughs> secret of youth. <laughs> yes, yeah, so all sorts of brand of face mask soothers and uh, sort of oils or whatever allegedly mm. used um, by her. Um, but in fact, um, they had been photoshopped. Uh, they had been airbrushed <laughs> to to make her. This was 1903. Um, Airbrushing um, 1903 scale. Yes. Wow. Yes, which wiped out, you know, her wrinkles and made her face smooth. Um, and she was a woman, of course. I mean, she was thrilled by the pictures presented to her. Um, and um, she had them blown up and hung in her bed bed chamber and, and she gave them as presents to uh, the um, to heads of state um, we have one airbrush portrait which she gave to President Roosevelt in America uh, in 1904 it is a, a fascinating portrait both kind of literally but also your portrait of it thank you so much for, for coming to talk to us about it thank you Jung Thanks so much for joining us for the June podcast. We'd love to hear what you think of the Vintage Podcast, so if you have a couple of minutes, please do write us a review on iTunes or a comment on SoundCloud. And join us again next month for more interviews and discussions with your favourite authors. Don't forget, if you've missed any of our podcasts or would like to listen again, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and at vintage-books.co.uk.